If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, coming to you again from Cause Camp. And in this episode, we're going to be speaking with Kristen Sucraw about finding and telling your best stories. Have you ever sat down to write a solicitation letter or a blog post or a social media post or even put together a short video and thought, oh, I can't think of a good story? When you know that you had had thought about dozens of good stories over the past year or you'd literally walked past them in your organization but just had not written them down. Well, that's why we wanted to have Kristen on the podcast and have that conversation about how you find those stories and then also how you tell them. So before we talk about that, let me tell you a little bit about Kristen Zucra. So she is a professional storyteller, which I actually think is probably one of the coolest jobs in the world. So she is an award-winning storyteller with a unique ability to bring stories to life. She also has authored the book, Story Find, the handbook of finding and telling your nonprofit's most impactful stories. In addition to being an amazing storyteller, an award-winning storyteller, and an author, she also is the executive producer at Story Find Films, where she helps other organizations and nonprofits find their stories and tell their stories. Additionally, I just have to let you know that she is a licensed mental health counselor. It is, I think, unique. I guess I see how the two fit together, but it's also unique to see someone who is an award-winning storyteller, a producer, and a licensed professional counselor as well. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dolph. It's so good to be here. Uh, So as someone with a social work degree myself, I'm, I'm very curious how you went from being licensed professional counselor to professional storyteller and film producer. Such a good question. So back in 2007, I was fresh out of grad school and jumped headfirst into the world of therapy. I loved working with teenagers. That was probably my most favorite thing. And some of that was because I was really young, 25, fresh out of school. 
And I loved the opportunity to help people grow. And that's the bottom line. The why that I do what I do across the board is I love to help people grow and make sense of their stories. So concurrently with me working as a therapist, my husband started a film production company. And he very quickly fell into the world of nonprofit storytelling. Along with that, we learned that storytellers that were coming from the nonprofit organizations were often people who had been through incredibly hard, traumatizing life stories. And we needed people who could interview them in a way that would keep them safe and in a way that would empower them, that their story was making a difference in the world and that wasn't re-traumatizing them in the process of telling their story for a nonprofit. So my husband would bring me along on production days, which was amazing. There's nothing quite like being on set for a film production. And I would have the honor and privilege of telling people's stories. I got to know them ahead of time, crafted the interview questions, and I soon learned that as I sat across from those people, those people for the storytellers for the nonprofits, it was not that much different than sitting across from someone in a counseling chair. I was applying the same techniques. I was helping them feel safe, um, helping them to trust me quickly and drawing their story out in a way that would give them meaning and closure and hope and purpose to keep going in life. So it was probably five years that I worked as a therapist. And finally, my husband was like, will you please come and join us full time? We really have a need for you to work not only on production day, but also in the working with the stories leading up to it. And so it has been my honor and privilege for the last decade to have served alongside him as executive producer at StoryFind Films in helping our clients tell their stories in a way that really takes amazing care of their storytellers. You mentioned you use a number of the same techniques that you did as a therapist. And I'm hoping you'd be willing to share what some of those techniques are. I realize that most of our listeners are not licensed therapists, but they might be techniques they can use as they draw stories out. Yes, I have so many, so many. So let me try to pick my top three <laughs> that will help your listeners to be able to apply these to their own interviews because they're really simple. And the first technique is something that I like to call embracing the pause. So when you sit down to interview a storyteller, sometimes it can feel like a Q&A session. Interview, answer, interview, answer, question, answer. And when people feel like they are in that situation, they are going to think that they need to answer in the correct way. So it becomes like a, what do you want me to say? I'll answer that way. So all of these techniques, the goal of all of them is to help break up that feeling of it being a Q&A and really help people get into the heart of their story. So embracing the pause is one of the ways you can help people get out of that flow of it being a Q&A and into the heart of a story. So if you see your storytellers start to wrestle with deep emotion, or maybe they've just paused for a second to gather their thoughts, most people jump in to rescue at that point. We want to ask another question. It can feel uncomfortable. We don't want them to feel uncomfortable. So like, what can we say to help move them out of this awkward moment of silence? But those moments of silence, honestly, are where some of the most profound thoughts will come from your storytellers. So if, if you see someone fall into silence mid-sentence, just sit with them in it and let them bring their thoughts back to life when they're ready. And you'll get just amazing responses that are full of depth and emotion and um, meaning honestly. 
So embrace the pause. That's one of them. Another one that I like to apply is if you don't have a lot of time with your storytellers, you can use a crisis counseling technique that I call doing the dip. So you'll start out your interview with the status quo and you ask them some casual questions that they're comfortable asking, answering. Maybe it's, who's your family? What are they like? What do you guys like to do together? You'll dip them down into the hard trauma parts of their story um, and then you'll bring them right back up out of it. So we work with an organization called Homes for Our Troops and Homes for Our Troops builds accessible homes for severely injured post 9-11 veterans. And every single one of them has to come and tell their story. I also don't get a lot of time with them, probably just 20 minutes each. We have to take them down into the day of their injury. We have to talk about the challenges in their current home. And then we have to like bring them right back up to the status quo and send them out the door on their way. And so doing the dip is incredibly effective with Homes for Our Troops. We start with, tell me about your family. How did you and your spouse meet? We dip down a little bit further. Tell me about the day that you were injured, hit the bottom. We start to climb back up the other side of that dip where we ask, what are some of the challenges that you have in your home now? Why do you need a home from Homes for Our Troops? And then finally, we climb back up to the top with the hope for the future. What are you looking forward to in a new home? And what does Homes for Our Troops mean to you? So, And when, when you say send them on your way, I also acknowledge that you're meaning send them on their way without being re-traumatized. So getting them to do that dip and when they're walking out, not feel like, oh, I just re-experienced my trauma. Yes. So we need them to go to the emotional places because we know that there's healing when they go to those emotional places too. That's the power of storytelling is when you can bring someone into those hard moments and they can see hope and life after those moments, that's when that healing takes place. So with each and every one of these veterans, we're not doing it to re-traumatize them. We're helping them share their story to make meaning of their story. And yes, send them on their way out the door feeling empowered and proud of the fact that they were mm. able to do something hard in sharing their story, but that it's going to help so many other veterans who are coming along behind them. Mm. So embrace the pause, do the dip, and I think you'll be well on your way to just breaking up a Q&A. Oh, mm -hmm. can I say one more? Of course. Okay. This is another one that's really great for breaking up uh, just the question and answer flow, and it's using restatements. So again, therapy technique, if you see a counselor, your counselor probably does this with you, and now you're going to notice it all the time. But oftentimes when someone finishes answering a question, instead of diving right in with another question, simply reflect back to them what you heard them saying. So uh, one of the veterans... The day that I was injured, a bomb hit. I couldn't feel my legs. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I hoped that I hoped that my buddies were okay and that someone would come and rescue me. Wow, that must have been incredibly terrifying. I cannot imagine what it felt like to be you there that day. And the response that you'll get back to that will be a more in depth, a more vivid piece of their story a story that connects to their emotions instead of just their mind and the logic behind it. It's incredible. So those simple techniques, restatements, doing the dip and embracing the pause will take you to places in your interviews that you didn't know were possible to go. One of the things I also noticed is you used an additional technique there as you were just telling that story. So you told me what three things you were going to do and then you did them. 
And then you said, oh, let me tell you the three things I just did. Embrace the pause, do the dip, and reflect back. And now I actually remember all three. Had you just said, okay, there's three things, and you moved on, I might not remember them. So that, I think that's another technique you probably, probably, but whether, whether you just know it so well now, it's not intentional, but intentionally or unintentionally, clearly, you've got that down pad as well. Yeah, I think you're right. That is one of the techniques as well. It's that summary at the end and providing clarity to whoever you're speaking with as well, making sure that they know that they were heard or that you were heard and that the points are are going to stick and last and serve them into the future. Now, before someone can sit down and start to get that story from someone, they have to identify someone with a story. How did, like, what are your thoughts? What are your recommendations? You know, again, let's assume small nonprofit, they don't have a marketing team, you know, they, you know, they, they can't afford a, a film production company, so they have to go find those stories on their own within their organization. How do they do that? That is such a good question and something we work with every single day. So I like to say that the process of story finding really starts with yourself, your mindset of creating within yourself just the knowledge and importance of gathering stories on a regular basis. And we refer to this as collecting stories for your story vault. So it doesn't matter what size your nonprofit is, small or large, you should have a story vault. If you have people working for you, they should know that part of their job is looking for, in every moment, a story that might be a good story to tell, jotting it down, sending it your way, if it's you, make sure you write down those stories ahead of time so that you have this vault of stories to pull from when it comes time to tell one. So this is a really common challenge, actually, for a lot of our nonprofit partners because they're like, oh, someone told me this story. I can't remember who it was about. Maybe it's in my email somewhere. What do I do? It's time. I need a story and I don't have it there. So we recommend a system of just using Google Drive folders to store your stories and label them, tag them with things that will serve you well into the future. But um, if you are starting from scratch, don't lose heart because there are some things that you can do to begin creating your story vault. And so the process of story finding for us really begins with the simple creation of a list of storytellers. And there's actually criteria that you can look for for who to put on that list. And, and real quick, when you say storytellers, you mean people who were served who can tell their story. Yes, I do. Um, yes, anyone who's been served, but also staff in your organization too. Don't be afraid to exclude them. Anyone who you can think of who, this is actually one of the criteria to, that we put on the list. Anyone who's made you think, I bet there's more to that story, put them on the list. If you're curious about them, your audience is going to be curious about them too. But we say, look for people who trust you, who can display vulnerability, who are willing to go to emotional places that you've seen go to emotional places. And then, of course, that final piece, which is um, the curiosity. Yeah, if you're curious about them, your audience is going to be curious about them, too. And that's such a beautiful thing. I also say when you're creating your list of potential storytellers, the first thing nonprofits do is go to the loudest voices. You're going to go to your usual suspects. It's going to be the people who've told their stories a hundred times. And you're like, oh, their story is so great. But honestly, their story has probably been told and retold so many times that the emotion and the meaning behind it is probably not going to be as impactful as people who are some of your quieter voices. 
So when a nonprofit comes to us and says, we need to create a list of our storytellers, where do we start? I always say start with those quieter voices because you are going to be amazed at what you find. Oftentimes, people are just waiting to be asked and you will find some of your most profound storytellers in the introverts of the people that you've served. So push yourself to look past the usual suspects and dig for those quieter voices. It's interesting. I guess I've always innately known that, but I like how you really drove home the point that, hey, if you've been profiling the same storyteller for a year or 18 months, people are probably growing tired of that same storyteller. You know, like if the same person's spoken at your gala for three years in a row, you know, chances are it's, you know, 75% of the people there have been there all three years and they're like, oh yeah, didn't we hear this person last year? Yes, you're 100% right. And I think there's some laziness and fear involved in that. The laziness is you know that they're going to do a good job. So like, let's just go with them again. But then I think there's some fear too in not being sure where to start because it is a daunting task to find the right voice to tell your story. So sometimes it's just pushing people to be like, let's look past these five people who we've used for years, like you've said, and let's find some new ones. So start with your list. Yeah. And and I also I also think part of where that fear comes from, I think, is sometimes really well-intentioned executive directors, development directors, marketing directors say, oh, I don't want this person to feel like I'm exploiting them by asking them to tell their story. Um, you know, or, oh, I don't want to re-traumatize this person. So how how do we move past that that hesitation to ask people to be storytellers for us? You are so right on with the biggest pushback that we get when we set out to find storytellers. We don't want to harm them more. Neither do we. But when you don't invite someone to share their story to me and to them, it is communicating that they have something to be ashamed of. You aren't worthy of sharing your story. You might be re-traumatized. You have something to be ashamed of there. The world doesn't need to hear it. When in fact, if you go into it with the right heart motives that you know that sharing the story is going to change someone's life, it's going to change their life. They are going to walk out feeling so proud of themselves, so proud of what they've overcome, so proud that they're helping people who are coming along behind them and that their story was not for nothing, that there's life after it. And that that is so incredible. You're actually giving those people a gift. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, especially if it's a former client, I know there's some ethical issues asking a current client, but you know, if it's, if it's a former client to assuming the person's an adult to accept that they're an adult and they can say no, and you can even say, say to them, Hey, it's fine to say no. Other people have told us no, that's okay. A hundred percent. It is okay to say no in the beginning. It's also okay to say no to interview questions. We tell people that up front, like, I'm going to push you a little bit here. If you feel uncomfortable at any point, you are in control. You can tell me no. And oftentimes I tell interviewers when we do interviewer training, some people can't say no. So you have to do a good job of watching their body language, watch for, do, does their glaze look come over their eyes? Are they going to another place? Are they falling silent, but it's not the right type of silence? Help them out there. If your heart is in the right place, you are going to take great care of that person who's in front of you. And so you mentioned questions and you can say to the person, it's okay to say no. That caused me to wonder, 
Do you give the questions up front or no? That's such a good question. No, never. We never give out interview questions up front because we do not want people to prepare answers. We want them to speak from the heart, not the head. I'll share with you, we do the same thing on this podcast. Hey, we don't really come up with questions. But but early on when I would come up with questions, if I sent the questions to someone, literally the person would just go off on a monologue and, and I would have to like try to stop the train. Stop, stop, I need to ask you a question. And I imagine that happens when you're when you're getting someone's story as well. So we actually get people's stories in two parts because of this. So we do, after the list making process, we will do discovery interviews with everyone that we are thinking about putting on camera. And because we're a film production company, and our clients are paying us money to achieve goals with the video that they're producing, we have to be really diligent and thorough in making sure that whoever we choose will actually help meet those goals. So we do these discovery interviews that are really long and broad where we learn everything we can about the storyteller. And from that, we overlay selection criteria of who comes out as the front runners. And so lots of times it's who is warm and caring, and you can sense that as a person who has innate storytelling ability, whose story contains really unique details that an audience will remember, and can they talk about that well? And then we always do messaging strategies, marketing term, up front too. So we also look at whose story will best help us achieve the client's goals and objectives. And usually a front runner will emerge from that And then we create questions based on their story and the goals that we hope to accomplish. But sometimes we will create story flows that kind of outline where we hope the storyteller's story will go. And this helps with the trauma cases because we will share that story flow with them up front and not the questions. So here's the pieces of it. Will you let me know if there is anything here that you are uncomfortable or not ready to talk about? Yes, these two things, no problem. They're off our list. If you Mm. change your mind on production day, let me know. We'll talk about them. But it's your story. They should have control over it. Yeah. Mm. So I'm naturally curious about the discovery interviews. How are those questions different from the interviews when the camera's rolling? You have such good questions. These are really good questions. Discovery interviews are really, really broad. So their goal is to discover the essence of who a person is, what they've been through sometimes since birth. They're often one to two hours long. They take a lot of rabbit trails and we learn just the heart and soul of who they are. And then at the end, we will weave in how the organization overlapped with their life story, what it meant to them, et cetera. But it's really discovery-based. When we go into the actual interview, we are looking to hit certain beats. So we've extracted a story flow. We've looked for emotional touch points too. Lots of times in discovery interviews, people will get to that first layer of their story, the story that they're comfortable telling. They've told it a million times and we won't take them deeper into it on that day because we don't want to lose the emotion for production day. But we can go back and watch the the pre-interview, the discovery interview and pull out. We see some nonverbal body language here that's indicating there's probably emotion beneath the surface. Let's mark that down. We're going to push into that. On production day. So it's a very safe interview in a discovery interview because it's, it is so broad. It is not full of emotion and it's just learning. How often does it happen that you do the discovery interview, everything's going well, you get into production day, you film it. And at the end, you think to yourself, 
Yeah, this isn't the storyteller that we need. I don't know if that has ever happened. Wow, okay. I can tell you the story of a woman named Rita who got cold feet. Do, I'd love to hear that, yeah. So there was a small HBCU in Selma, Alabama, and I had the privilege of going down and pre-interviewing probably 20 to 30 students and former students who had gone on to be successful about their time at Concordia and what the school meant to them. And it was for a major capital campaign. And we met this wonderful woman named Rita who grew up in a home with extreme poverty, no running water. Their bathroom was in the backyard. And to be clear, in the United States. This is in the United States. This Mm -hmm. is in Selma, Alabama. Um, She went to her high school guidance counselor told her she was considering college and the guidance counselor told her she was not college material, that she should get a job at a sewing factory. And Rita said in her discovery interview, I believed her. So Mm. that's what I did. I got a job in a sewing factory. Mm. And it wasn't until several years later, someone from the college came to her church and said, would you be interested in taking some classes if we brought professors to the church? Said that specifically to her or to the entire like congregation? To her. Wow. Someone, okay. someone saw something. And she said mm. that someone saw something in me and believed in me and wanted me to be my best. Yeah. And so she did the classes. She got hooked on <laughs> what she discovered education was really all about, that it wasn't just about the books. It was about those people who care about you as an individual. And she went on to be, I would say, the most beloved elementary school teacher in Mm. Selma, Alabama. Wow. So her goal was to take education and transform other lives with it because she had been transformed as well. So powerful. She was perfect. Um, We got all set up. This beautiful historic chapel. We had all of our crew there. We had the client there. And we waited. And we waited and we waited and we waited. And the sun started to set and Mm. there was no Rita And the school's development director called her and she said, I just got so scared. I'm so scared for people to know this about me. Like, what will they think of me? And the development director said, I really think this is an important part of your story is being able to help not only at the elementary schools where you teach, but also all of these other students who are coming along behind you. They need to know that they're not alone in what they've experienced. Will you please consider doing this again tomorrow? And she said, okay. Wow. So... The development director drove to the school where Rita taught. She followed her home while she changed clothes. (laughs) Kid you not. She parked her car in the driveway behind Rita's. And she escorted her to set where for two hours through a lot of tears, Rita shared her story. And at the end of it, this is so cool. And this is what I want. This is what I want everyone listening to take away. Rita said, you don't know what you've done for me. Mm. It took away that shame. Yeah. She saw that her story was going to have a huge impact on so many other people like her. She almost missed it. She almost missed the chance. So I get teary. I get emotional with that story because it's, it is the why behind what I do every day. The why we work so hard to get better at our storytelling techniques and to learn how to care for people better Because the reality is, no, we really don't get to production day and have the wrong storyteller because we've worked so hard 
up front to find the people who are ready, whose story is aligned with the goals for the project. And we've worked to create those relationships that will allow them to be vulnerable in the moments where they need to be. Mm. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so Kristen, it's interesting. That story is such a good summary of our conversation today. I think there's five key things that I'm taking away from our conversation. And the first that I take away is always be on the lookout for stories and keep a list. So, you know, just keep a little Google Doc or something in my phone, keep a list. The second thing that I take away from our conversation is don't be afraid to ask. So kind of like with Rita, it was asking and then even going back and going, okay, we know you have cold feet. We really need you to think about this for yourself. And then the third, um, really third, fourth, and fifth, is your trio suggestions for getting good stories out of people. So that's don't be afraid of the pause. That's also the dip. So status quo, down in the trough, back up to the top without them feeling trauma at the end and they walk out feeling good. And then the fifth one, the restate or the reframe. So repeat back what the person said and then let them build from there. Those are my five takeaways in terms of as I'm looking for stories in the work that I do with my clients and friends who are listening. I would encourage you as well to think about those five takeaways. And if you have other ones, please let me know. Now, Kristen, I also want to be able to ask you the off the mat question. And every now and then I learn something that makes me go, huh, I don't know that. And so this is a very elementary off the mat question. In preparing for the interview, I noticed that you really want an atomic house at some point in Palm Springs. Now, I know where Palm Springs is, and I know, I know what Palm Springs is. I don't know what an atomic house is. So I would love for you to explain to me, and probably a lot of my friends who are listening, what an atomic house is. Okay, so I might have to like pull it up on Google to explain it exactly, but... The Palm Springs area in Southern California in general is populated with this period of homes that are called Atomic Ranch Homes. And they were built in the 50s as a certain architectural style. That's like so cool. So they have like the A-frame house. They're all one level um, and they're beautifully laid out with this like flow to them. That's just incredible. So Atomic Ranch, it was in the Atomic Bomb era. I'm sure that's where it gets its name. But they are colorful and bright and fun and full of life and warmth and emotion and beauty. And also you're mid-century modern then, which is very, very popular right now. Yes. Now, is there an, is there an atomic ranch house that um, you have seen and you're like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing home? Well, truly any of them in Palm Springs. Wow. Like if you just drive down the street, they, I, I don't know, someone told me there's like four different styles to them um, and we will Airbnb there and- just go and rest and relax and refresh and stay in a different type every time. So friends, I'm not going to go to Palm Springs and get an Airbnb just to, so I can put something on the show notes, but we will go to Google and we'll find an atomic house and we'll link to it because I still have a little bit of a hard time. I get, I picture the A-frame, but I also want to be able to picture that beautiful flow inside the home. So friends, we're going to post to that in our show notes as well. Kristen, you know, whenever we start to wind down the conversation, it's important that our friends who are listening know more about how to get a hold of you. And so friends, there are two ways I would suggest you do that. The first is if you go to kristensucra.com, 
That is her website. And while you are there, you're going to be able to learn more about Kristen. You'll be able to find out more about her book. And just as a reminder, that book is Story Find, the handbook of finding and telling your nonprofit's most impactful stories. I'm sure you can probably also get that book at Amazon. I, I always hate to promo the big online retailer, but I'm sure you can get it at Amazon. Or as I like to say, you could probably walk into your local bricks and mortar bookstore and they'll order it for you. They're pretty good about that. It just might take a few more days than Amazon will take. Um, Additionally, if you are on Instagram, which I am not, so do not look for me on Instagram, but if you are on Instagram, um, you can go to at storyfindbook. That's at storyfindbook on Instagram. And let me just say, I'm not throwing any shade for people that are on Instagram. I got nothing against it. I'm just not that hip. All right, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has truly been the best part of Cause Camp for me is just sitting down and talking with you. So thanks for making it easy. Awesome. Thank you. All right, friends, if you found this episode helpful, if it motivated you to find stories and to get stories from your staff, from your clients, from the communities that you serve, there are two other episodes I think you should consider downloading and listening to. The first is episode 211 with Tracy Goodwin, the story your voice tells. And friends, Tracy Goodwin actually was my uh, vocal coach. After doing the podcast for three or four years, I realized I should get a vocal coach and would help with some of the ums and ahs. She was phenomenal. I would recommend her as a vocal coach. I also recommend that you check out the story your voice tells. She actually talks about the psychology of the voice and it's powerful, powerful episode. Additionally, episode 253, become your nonprofit's brand ambassador with Rita Sorenen. And Rita Sorenen is with the Dave Thomas Foundation, I believe, um, and a huge, huge proponent of adoption. And she is an incredible brand ambassador for both adoption and the Dave Thomas Foundation. So that, my friends, is our episode for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And you know, friends, I never really want to do it, but if I don't, I will get a nasty gram from my lawyer. So I am required to tell you that I'm not an accountant, nor am I an attorney. And honestly, I say it every week, so you should already know that. But part of what that means is that I don't provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. And this show and the consulting practice um, do not provide tax, legal, and accounting advice. The podcast is for informational purposes only. And please, for everything that you care about, which probably means everything in your life if you're thinking about tax, legal, and accounting advice, then what you need is a professional, licensed lawyer or accountant. So if that's what you need, please find one and get the counsel you need.